1: Maria with today's special guest, Mark Holloway from New Zealand. He is the author of Eleven Days, The Freedom Diaries, Cry the Wounded Land, and What They Never Told You. Thank you, Mark, for being on Faith City Outreach to share a couple of your book topics, such as how God sees our past native land battles and injustices as well as the importance of having a conversation with God.
2: Thanks, Marina.
1: Mark, what is your salvation story?
2: Okay. Um, I, I was um, 16, I think, and um, I was approached by some Bible college students on the street in a city called Tauranga in uh, New Zealand, where I'm from, and, um, and uh, i don't know why i went but they invited me to go on to church with them so i did um <coughs> and um, rest is history really I, I um to my surprise at the end of the church service as i suppose millions of people do i um sensed that god wanted to um talk with me or something that that that, that yeah that god wanted to do something with me so um that was it really yeah.
1: So who impacted your relationship with the Lord as a 16-year-old?
2: Um, probably mostly my sort of contemporaries, you know, other other teenagers who were at church. I mean, that was sort of, I didn't realise at the time, but that was really kind of New Zealand's um, version of the Jesus movement in in America, you know. So it was at the time of the Jesus movement. So there was lots of young people, you know um around
1: and how about as an adult
2: um my wife probably um and also uh my father-in-law a guy called graham crawshaw who ran camps for children um and unsaved children from broken homes mainly from um uh, maori kids um maori is new zealand's um, first nations people um so, um, not, not that he felt that he had a ministry with Maori above Pakeha, and Pakeha is the Maori word for um, European, white European here. So, in, in New Zealand, which is a small country, five million of us, um, we, you know, there are lots of other cultures as well now. But growing up, um, and even still, the two predominant cultures are Maori, the First Nations people, and Pakeha, um, European. When did God encourage
1: you to write about our past Native land battles and how he sees injustices, Mark?
2: Um, I, uh, so I had already sort of become known as the guy. Um, I've written a book called The Freedom Diaries, which you just mentioned, Marina, um, which um, is basically um, documented 56 back-and-forth conversations with God um, between me and God. And, um, so I had already sort of become known as, um, the guy who has backwards and forwards conversations with God, either in writing or out loud. Um, are your audience sort of familiar with or comfortable with the whole, um, concept of prophecy and that sort of thing, Marina?
1: Yes, for the most part.
2: Yep. Okay. So, um, I, some, somebody described this to me, a chap called David Garrett, who I don't know if you're aware of David, but he founded um, him and his wife Dale, um, founded Scripture and Song about 50 years ago, um, which sort of swept the world really with kind of more modern music for, in church and that sort of thing. Anyway, David, um, when he heard about what I was doing, he described it as self prophecy, really. You know, you're, you're, you're speaking or writing to God and then speaking or writing back. Um, what he says to you, but rather than it being over someone else, it's over you. Anyway, um, so I was that guy, and um, I, what happened was I was I was on a I, I own a business as well, a marketing and sales training business, um, and I was on a business trip and um, in the in the on a country road and um, stopped. For a cup of tea, I had a – is the term thermos, is that something that Americans use? Yeah, it's a – A thermos?
1: It's not often heard, but, yes, it is a word that they know.
2: You know, it's like a container that keeps water hot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It keeps
1: things warm or cold, right?
2: Yeah. So I stopped on the side of the road for a cup of tea. I had a cup of tea in a thermos, and I stopped there in, in a car park. And there was a, a, a sort of a memorial thing, an obelisk sort of shaped um, monument, I suppose, um, just on the side of the road in the middle of the country. So I had my cup of tea and I just walked over it to see see what, what it was about, you know. And um, it had a Māori name, Rewi Maniapoto. And that's spelled R-E-W-I-Maniapoto, um, M-A-N-I-O-P-O-T-O. Um, and I knew a little bit of New Zealand history. Um, in New Zealand, uh, Pākehā European uh, are a bit like um, uh, white Americans. We don't actually know as much of our history as we'd like to think we do, particularly our interactions with um with the with the First Nations people, but anyway, I knew a little bit of of history, and I knew that the name Rewi Maniapoto was one of our um, famous chiefs from back in the um, sort of the beginning of um, civilization. Well, that's a bit that's probably an unfortunate term. Back when the the whites first became involved um, in New Zealand, um, and he was particularly famous in the land wars. Um, so I just sort of. Here's this guy's name, Rewi Maniapoto, across this monument. That's all there was. It was just, so I just assumed it must be, I don't know, his grave or something. Um, but it was a four-sided monument. So being inquisitive, I just sort of looked around the other side of the monument. And there was this huge history of um, about General Cameron, who was the head of the European forces in the land wars, and what a great battle he fought there against Rewi Maniapoto. And and so I was just intrigued. I wasn't, you know, I have to, I'm sorry to admit, but I, I, well, being European, of course, my natural affiliation is to European things. You know, it's just how I was raised. So it wasn't as though I was sympathetic in any way to Riwi Mani So I just wondered why he only had his name and Cameron had this great story, you know. And and I sort of stood there thinking, I wonder if they ran out of money when they got to Riwi Money Why didn't his story get told, you know? Um and so I had my phone with me, and I I Googled the story. It was, it was the battle of, um, of um, well, I would have said Orakau, um, but the Maori pronounced it Orakau, um, which is O R A K A U. Anyway, the the um, I Googled it, and the official New Zealand history, you know, written by by uh, predominantly uh, white European. Um, made it clear that there had been, it was almost like New Zealand's um, wounded knee, I think, you know, that I'm not very familiar with, with American history, but um, it was a terrible story, you know, Um, and uh, primarily because of the injustice against the Maori. The Maori decided at at one point during the battle, the woman and the children who were enclosed in the Maori fortress there, uh, which we call a PA, PA, decided they would just leave. So they, you know, they, they walked out of the par um, sort of in a kind of, well, we're just going to go now. So you men can fight it out. Um, and the British troops chased them and bayoneted them. And there was 160 of them killed. So it sounds very much like, you know, um, your wounded knee. Um, well, I was horrified reading this thing, you know, um, I, I, and not because I'm, have any strong natural or historical affiliation with Maori? It just seemed like a very unfair thing, you know. Um, so I had a conversation with God about it. I said, "Well, what what the heck's going on here? You know, this doesn't sound. I didn't know about this. How come nobody told me about this? Because this happened. I don't know, half an hour from where I live, you know, and yet I've grown up here and had no idea that this sort of thing happened. Um, and uh, then the next thing that happened is 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 in the in the um, account of the battle on Google, it talked about how the British forces then turned up in a place where I live called Todonga, And, and I already knew what happened after that. Cause that, but we did get taught at school, the, the soldiers, um, the, 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 um, the, all the officers of the cavalry and the soldiers were entertained by the local missionaries. They went for dinner at the local missionaries, um, house, you know, which we were always taught as kids that, that was a great gallant thing, you know, and they, they had dinner there that night and then they went off to fight the savages the next morning. That's how it was presented to us as white kids, you know. Well, I'm reading this thing and I'm thinking, what, they killed 160 women and, or women and children and then the missionaries had them for dinner, you know, like had them around for tea? Uh, if I, And I just said to God, if I was one of the Māoris, I would never have set foot in a church again. You know, like what on earth is going on there? And then the conversation with God about that began. Um, and I have a blog where I publish my conversations with God, and I published that conversation, knowing that that I would be in trouble with Pakia, with with European. And and I wasn't sure about how Maori would receive it because who who am I, a, a European to be having a conversation with God about deeply hurtful um, historical matters about Māori. But to my surprise, I, I got a lot of Māori feedback that I, I basically was along this line. I don't know how you would know that because you're a Pākehā, but you must be hearing from God because you're echoing um, the stuff that we've carried for 150-odd years. You know? Anyway, that's a lot. Sorry, that was a long answer, but that's the answer to your question.
1: No, thank you so much. Now, you said that you got a lot of feedback from the Māori, but what kind of feedback did you get from the
2: Europeans? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a lot of it wasn't friendly, I have to say. Um, How
1: did you respond to their
2: feedback? Well, the thing is, you see, that, you know, I'm not the guy that you would pick. If I was God, I wouldn't have picked Mark Holloway to have a conversation with God about about these matters because I'm pretty white and bigoted, you know. I'm sorry to admit that, but that's my whole history. Um, So when somebody else white and bigoted has a go at me about it. I'm pretty forceful in my discussion, you know, like, no, I, I, look, I'm sorry, but I heard God say that. And i just got to print what I hear him say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I began to recount to them the history, because, you know, the history, it's all in the history books and in, you know, on Google and on the net. So I kind of took them through that. They were like, Oh, well, you know, how come so, sort of, but trying to defend there must be some reason, you know, the, the interesting thing, Marina, is when we read about um, your stories like Wounded Knee, because it wasn't us, then we can see the injustice. You know, even even us whites, we can go, wow, that's unfair. No, because it was the blooming Americans, you know. But um, but when it's the reverse, when it's us, you know, um, we find it hard to see. And I imagine that would be the case with any people, you know, Um Mark, yeah.
1: how does God want Christians to respond to the need of land battles and injustices?
2: Um, okay, so, and I get asked this question a lot. So, so so, if I can give you some bit of background. So I ended up as a result of that conversation, Marina, um, I had quite a number of, of conversations with God over a period of time um, about Māori and Pakia and the relationship between us. Um, and eventually I put them in a book called Cry the Wounded Land. And it's Cry the Wounded Land. It's on our, You can get it on our website, which is um, – our website is www.thefreedomassignment.com. Um, anyway, because of uh, Cry the Wounded Land, it started selling reasonably well in New Zealand. So I would, was suddenly seen as sort of an authority, primarily by the European or the Pākehā. Um Maori because of the hurt uh, they have a word for it, the Maori have a word for it, the mamai. Um, and it's the hurt that has been carried by generations because of that, there's an obvious mistrust in any old white guy who thinks he's suddenly hearing from God about both both peoples you know um, and I understand that um, but anyway, I was getting asked by um, a lot of European people to speak on this topic and they always want to know what you're saying. you know well what's God saying to us? Um, so of course I asked God about that and his answer to me was very clear. Um, I want to talk to each individual about this. I don't want to talk to a people group. I want to talk to each individual. And when I pushed him and sort of said, well, that's not actually a very good answer. You know, like it's, people aren't going to be excited about that answer. I need something a bit simpler than that. Um, people don't want to have to come and ask you, um, well, he kind of stressed to me that the problem, the 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 problem between Pakia and um, Māori in New Zealand, or um, white Americans and and Native Americans in America, just any racial tension, you know, that's come about. Um, and you were talking specifically about the land Wars. Um, <clears throat> those things happen one person at a time, generally. Although you might have had a a white infantry come in to, to um, solve what the whites saw as a problem. Generally, it was a land problem. We want the land, you know. So if the, if the native owners aren't going to give it up, well, we're going to take it. Um, but generally, the, the, um, from what I can see, the, the um, justification in people's minds for doing that was little individual situations. Where white didn't understand black or brown or red, and, um, and, and vice versa. So suddenly there are altercations between the two people. Um, but on it, you know, one family against another family, one man against, or 10 of these guys against 10 of those. And, you know, just lots of individual situations escalate into a feeling of unrest and, um, and hatred. And then in comes the military of either one side or the other. You know, um, and so what I believe God is saying is that in the same way as the problem happened, one person, ten people, a hundred people at a time, um, that we need to talk to Him one person at a time and find out what's our part. You know, what's my part in solving this? I can't change the thinking of the entire, you know, white population, but I can change my my thinking. And the same obviously goes for indigenous peoples, because when you hurt a people, when you hurt a person, then their response, although you caused it by hurting them, is never perfect. So, you know, we all start carrying the mess, don't we? You know, we all become responsible for it. Um, so those who instigate it, generally us whites, um, we need to talk to God about, well, well how do we what are you saying to me about this? And the people who who, who were hurt and are now carrying resentment and, and all sorts of, well, ill effects because of what was done to them. We Um we've, we've all got a part to play and we, unfortunately, we all have to go to God individually is what I think. That's what I think God is saying.
1: So we all have to go to God in order to heal our hearts. You said that I want to make sure I understand this, that the Maori need to do it and also the people who calls the herd to the Maori, the
2: Europeans, right? I think we all do, you know, and I think obviously the Pākehā need to do it first because we were the instigators, but, um, but even if I've found out from God what I need to do, well, let's keep it really simple. Let's say God says I need to acknowledge my people's fault in this situation. Well, when I do that, it doesn't necessarily help the Maori. You you know, like it doesn't take away the poverty that some of them suffer because of our taking their land. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, even if I gave my own land back, that's only going to help one or two of them. So, um, there's we all are going to have to. we're, We're brothers in this, and there's been a fight, and always in a fight, somebody started it. So the person who started it, and as generally us Europeans, we have to acknowledge that. Um, but somehow both sides are going to have to be talking to dad about, oh, how, do we, how do we be happy families again? You know, How is that possible?
1: So what, why is the healing taking so long?
2: Huh. <laughs> That's and we a, know the long. answer.
1: We know that repentance needs to take place. We know we need to go to God individually, but why is the healing taking years and years and years?
2: Um, I think it's because, well, I can only speak from New Zealand's point of view, right? So I'll speak from New Zealand. I, I'm, I, I know nothing much at all about America' heal situation, uh, but, I, but I hear that what I'm about to say is a bit common with you guys too. Um, but, for instance, um, the, the land wars in New Zealand happened in 1862. And so there was unrest for about 20 years afterwards and unrest for, for about the same, you know, sorry, afterwards and before. But, but the effects have gone on for, um, you know, what's that, 160 years, you know. Um, and yet, really, only in the last 20 or 30 years have the main populace, you know, the, the Europeans, the whites in New Zealand, been even made aware of that. We just didn't even know. You know, we we and I. Um, so all those things are sort of covered up historically. You know, there was a time when um, when the Maori in New Zealand were part of. Uh, they were considered um, part of the um, forest and fauna. You know, they were sort of like just things. You know, as far as the whites were concerned, they were part of. They were sort of just part of the the environment. They weren't necessarily seen as proper people. Um, I don't think. I don't think a lot of individuals would have recognized that as true but but if the if the thinking of the government and the organization and the systems is like that, then that's going to influence you know um, and we're all basically selfish aren't we? so if we're on the winning side and things are going well for us, then it's easy to sort of ignore what it's not going so well for those people over there, you know um so you people, you have sort of reservations and situations like that. We had um, what they call marae, um, and it sounds like mud-eye, but it's spelt M-A-R-A-E, um, where where sort of the, the more land that us whites took, the more the Māori, because they're far more social people than us whites, tended to congregate together on, on what was left, which was not necessarily the good land either, I might add. Um, and... So, but I, but as a kid, I just was sort of told that they liked living over there. That's how they liked living, you know? So, so what your parents tell you, and that was probably because they got told that too. So for the first hundred or 140, 30 years, the reason it took so long is because we just chose as a people to stay ignorant of the problem. Um, And the Maori, um, being a, a, a kind of a soft-hearted, although they're quite warlike, you know, when, when they are need to be at war, they're a soft-hearted and social and sort of forgiving people. So um, there wasn't much left. Well, they had tried recourse in the courts early on and just been laughed out of court, basically. Um, so, you know, the power was as it has been all around the world um, in the Europeans' hands. So... Finally, it sort of comes, the government, as a result of protesters, etc., begin to apologize about 30 years ago for um, the injustice. And tribunals were set up to kind of acknowledge all these things. And typically, I, look, I'm embarrassed to say this, but generally the church is the last to acknowledge those things. Um, and normally because it becomes embarrassing for them not to know, but um, still in church, you know, um, if I talk to the average white Christian about these issues, it's not, it's somewhere between uncomfortable and actually just totally denied, you know, that, that there isn't a, well, what about them? You know, there's always the, now that to me sounds a bit like what I used to say when my dad used to find me and my brother fighting, you know, well, what about him? You know, he did that, you know, it was his fault, you know. Um, well, both sides say that, but because the other side says it doesn't justify us white saying it too. you know, we've got to clean up our own act. You know, the, the whole conversation with God thing, I know you're going to ask me about this later, but the whole conversation with God thing, Marina, for me started because my wife and I separated for five years. And... Um, I, I sort of wanted to tell God all about what she'd done wrong in the relationship and, you know, all those sorts of things. And and God said to me, I knew this had to be God. This is when I knew I was having a conversation with God because I thought, well, let, I certainly would have, wouldn't have made that one up. Um, he, he said, look, um, we're only going to be talking to you about what you did wrong. You know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk to her about her part, but you're not going to be involved in that. We're going to be talking to you about your part not really interested in what you think she did wrong. You know? How
1: did you respond to that? I didn't like
2: that. <laughs> I didn't like it. What did I, you say to him? <laughs> um, well, I was a bit shocked, you know. Uh, <laughs> I was a bit speechless. And, of course, I was emotionally vulnerable at the time. So I I, I don't know. I just said, that can't be you. You know, I, I don't believe that's you. I rebuke you, Satan, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but eventually... Um, yeah, and it was kind of other women I knew, you know, just friends, you know, w- w- said to me, you know, that sounds a lot like what God would say, I think. <laughs> you know?
1: So, when did you finally accept it? What made uh, you finally accept it?
2: Ah, uh, okay. All right. So, this is how the conversation with God developed. Um, so, so God said those things. I wasn't sure whether it was Him. He said two things: um, she'll be back, and uh, you you caused this. Um, and I, my response was, you know, what about the fact that it takes two sides? There's two sides to every story, you know. <laughs> and and I could hear, I thought, God saying, "Yes, there are two sides, but we'll only be talking to you about your side." So and that was the the reason I suspected it might be God it was was so unlike what I thought um and it was so articulate it came in a clear sentence you know and I so I knew that it had to be a spiritual ent- it was either God or the enemy you know like I knew it wasn't me um and but I was Quite a sin. Well, I am a cynical Christian in the sense that I'm always like, really about anything that seems a bit spiritual. So I didn't want to be, you know, here's me, my wife's left me. I don't want to be that guy that goes gaga, you know, just totally off. And suddenly he's hearing voices and thinking it's God and, you know, et cetera. I didn't want to be that guy. So I argued, as I've just said, but then I could hear the same thing, you know, like I could just feel it just in a quiet, Loving, insistent way. No, well, not even insistent. Just God wasn't going to change his tune. You know, he wasn't ramming it down my throat. But I, and it, so it frustrated me. And and when the answer to when is there's two answers to that. When it, if I finally realised it was him, I sort of realised almost straight away because it was so otherworldly and so unlike me and unlike what I knew of the enemy. And I would constantly end up in tears, not only from frustration, but you know, I, I'm one of those guys that when God turns up, I cry, you know. So I kind of my responses were what would normally happen if if in a God moment. Um so almost instantly I I I strongly suspected it was God, but it was so unlike anything that I'd ever heard. You know, guy at the, the worst time in his life, he's just sent his wife away in the sense of his actions have driven his wife away. Um, is hearing God clearly? That can't be right, you know. Um, so honestly, uh, Marina, it took years. I mean, well, we were separated for five years. She she came back six years ago, but we were separated for five years. And the thing that frustrated me constantly was, you know, I would want to look. God, can I just stop all this believing that she's coming back and just get on with my life now? You know, no, she she's coming back. Uh-huh please, you know. So it was kind of like I thought I might be going mad, you know, like I was just sort of lovesick or something and couldn't accept that it was over, you know. Um, So honestly, I didn't fully accept that God was saying that till she contacted me and said, I'm coming back. You know, (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, It it shocked everybody, me included. Like it was the furthest thing that from what one would expect, you know.
1: Mark, why is it so important for Christians to care about the native land battles and even just First Nation issues, even if it Um, happened long ago?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so... Well, I asked God this a lot because, you know, I could hear him saying that there'd been these injustices, you know, when I told him about the battle at Urako and said, this, this doesn't seem fair. And God said, well, no, it wasn't. I could sort of sense that this wasn't a past. Well, I said that, I said, but surely this is past God, you know? Um, and he said something along the lines of it. It'll be past when it's past. You know, God can be pretty cryptic like that. So I said, well, what do you mean by that? You know, Um, but I could sense that it was important. It was kind of like talking to your dad about something and you're kind of thinking, uh-oh, hang on, there's more to this than I thought. And somehow I'm implied in this. And if I say anything about this, all my contemporaries are going to think I've lost my mind. And all my Maori contacts are going to think, who the heck are you to be, you know, knowing about this? Because you don't. Um, you're like a bull in a china shop um, with the whole thing. Um, it's important to God, I think, when I ask him, it's important to God because yesterday is as today. And, tomorrow, you know, like the time isn't such a big issue for God as it is for us. So if it happened, it happened. Um, <laughs> and if it was wrong, it was wrong. And the spiritual kind of like spiritual Things happen when you murder women and children in a place, you know, on mass. Well, even if you don't just murder one woman or one child, but when you do 160 of them, um, then there's this whole crying out. Of course, the Maori would have cried out both as they died and all those that were grieving for them. And God hears the voice of the wounded, you know, and they call out for justice. Now, the thing is that the Pakia, who represented the church, you know, the Christian church, they thought the Māori were all pagan. Um, so if they call out, well, God isn't going to hear them. You know, God is on our side. Um, but biblically, you know, was it Melchizedek or when, when uh, was it Moses or Joshua? I'm sorry, I can't, I can't quite remember. But he said to you know, him, whose side are you on? And and God said, "I'm not I'm not on anybody's side, but the place where you stand is holy. So take your shoes off, you know. Um, so this isn't about being on anyone's side. So if a people called out to God, however they perceived Him to be, for justice, you know, and in grieving, God hears that, and that that's still ringing in God's ears. I think, you know. So." I can ask God's forgiveness on part of my people for that, but it hasn't gone away yet, you know. So, But most of my people aren't. We're only just becoming aware that that is necessary. Now, let's pretend that we all got down and on our knees and genuinely repented for that, genuinely acknowledged responsibility. Well, you know, the likelihood of that happening, but let's pretend it did. Is it now over? No. And all we've done is acknowledged our responsibility. Now we and those who have been harmed have to somehow sit down together and go, now what do we do? You know, it's like when my wife and I came back together, it wasn't just sort of happy days. Like, oh, great. You know, we're, we're, there was all these wounds that had caused the separation in the first place. and And we're still dealing with that. I'm still me. I'm still the guy that caused the damage, you know. Um, people don't get transformed overnight. The steps of a good man are ordered by the law, but though he falls, so us good men fall. Does that answer your question?
1: It does. And that is the major step that needs to take place. But like you said, more needs to happen afterwards. It's still not unresolved.
2: Uh, Look, Marina, I think this is the one of the conversations where they have with God and cry the wounded land, um, he said this. He said the problem is with your two people, and I, you might. This may ring some bells for what's happening in America, but the problem with your two people, Pakia and uh, Marty, is that um, you need to champion the other's difference. But what you do is you look for what is the same in them as you. So you think, oh right, God wants us to identify with our European or our Maori brothers, you know, um oh, I see a thing about yeah, they're kind of like me, you know, and uh, and so you 're looking for things that are like you um, and it 's what happens in a marriage, you try and make the other person the same as you, you know you like the things about them that are like you, but the whole idea is that they are actually different, completely different you would you're just never going to understand that person um. And that is the thing. That's the thing you always fall in love with when you first meet the person. Oh, they're so different and wonderful and unique, et cetera. But then you want to conquer them and make them like you. (laughs) you And, and so I think what happens is we all want to conquer each other. It doesn't matter whether we're the indigenous or the European, we have a, we have a self preservation um, instinct, you know? Um, So, um, But somehow we need to recognize that the other is different and that's good and and be guided by God. And the example I give when we speak about this is this, it's like, you know, the morning after you get married and you wake up and, you know, you look at her or him and and you look at them and you, there's just this little fear thing that says, this is forever, (laughs) you know, like. I can't just go and do whatever I want to today. Now I have to like, yesterday, you know, like I was dating her up until yesterday and now I'm living with her, you know, like, like whatever I do today, I'm going to need to consider her moment by moment, man alive. How do I do that? What if I don't like what she does? What if I don't like what she has for breakfast? You know, she likes toast. No one told me that, you know, so it, (laughs) It's those kind of things. It's learning to live with the Māori do things different than Pākehā, you know, and vice versa. Um, uh, you know, they say about us that we're destination focused, that us Europeans are destination focused. It's all about where we're going. Um, but they are journey focused. That It's the journey, you know, and that's so true. We, and I believe that God's saying that us Pākehā need to learn from them and they need to learn from us that he put us together, you know, because we weren't actually complete without the other. And that's a horrifying thought for both sides, actually.
1: Now you, you know, mentioned so I, that both of them need to find the similarities, but that is going to take time. That's going to take effort
2: and um, humility. Yes, no, no, that, that's not what I mean. I, sorry, I miss. I miss. I, I confused you there. I. I think God wants us to not look for the similarities oh, but to, okay to, to, to recognize that the other is different and that's okay. great. you know okay. to look look at look at my Maori brother like I don't even understand why he thinks like that, but he's mm-hmm. amazing. You know?
1: but even finding the differences is going to take respect and it's going to take humility and take time. Because you need time to notice or identify the differences and respect the differences.
2: Well, Marina, I mean, exa- example in a marriage, really, is from what I can tell, if mine's anything to go by, I, the day one of us dies, will we'll, that'll be the end of the story? But we'll have been trying to improve all the way to that day. Mm-hmm. You know, like I won't be over till it's over, sort of thing. There's never going to be a well. It's perfect now.
1: Right, it's ongoing.
2: Yeah. And so it's taken, in New Zealand's case, 160 odd years to get to where we are. And I think God's got time. He's, he's, you know, it's going to take another 160 probably to undo 160 years worth of damage, you know, but it takes commitment. And that's one of the other problems with any people. But us Christians can be the worst at it. We think, oh, okay, now I see the problem. Well, let's have it fixed right now. You know, I'm sorry. And and my Māori friends say to me, it's okay for you park here to be sorry. You know, you get down on your knees and you'll apologize and you weep and wail. Then you go home to your expensive houses and your nice cars and we have to walk back or go in our, you know, old cars to a, you know, it's not over yet. You know, just, just being sorry doesn't fix it. You know, there's, there's, there's hundreds of years of damage here. And that's hard for us to accept as Europeans.
1: This is Marina Maria from Faith City Outreach, and I am speaking with today's special guest, Mark Holloway, the author of 11 Days, The Freedom Diaries, Cry the Wooden Land, Cry the Wounded Land, and What They Never Told You. We are discussing a couple of his book topics, such as how God sees our past land battles, our past native land battles and injustices, as well as the importance of having a conversation with God. Mark, when did God put it in your heart to write freedom diaries?
2: Um, okay. So, um, you know, as I said, um, my marriage had busted and, uh, I screamed out to God, like this is famous. World War one general Marina. I can't remember his name, but the, the quote from him was, um, there are no atheists in the trenches. Um, and when my wife left me, I was, I was in the trenches, you know, like that was my trench. So I screamed out to God Now I did already believe in God, but I wasn't necessarily a very godly person. But, um, so I screamed out to God and he said a couple of things. Um, you did this and she'll be back. Um, so I argued with him and the conversation with God developed out of that. The, the more I argued, the more I heard back, till I realized that I was either going mad or having an actual conversation with God. Um, I generally did it in writing, um, but I also did it out loud. So I would speak, I know this sounds crazy, but I would speak God's um, word. I would speak my question to God and I would speak his answer back. And what I was doing really is I'm just articulating God's voice in the same way as you might in a prophetic thing, you know. Uh, but I'm just hearing it for myself. So, but mainly in writing, um, and I was I was writing these conversations down and I began to send them to some of my friends primarily because I was hoping they would tell me whether I was going loopy or whether I actually was hearing God. You know, that that was the purpose. Um, and they started, friends would say, wow, this, I think this is God. You should send this to so-and-so. And your next thing you know, sounds like next thing, but I, after a period of about a year, there was about 300 people getting these conversations with God, you know? Um, and, uh, and a lot of people in leading ministries around the world, because, you know, the world's a small place and Christianity is an even smaller groups. So, you know, people knew people and suddenly lots of leading Christians are getting well, lots of, you know, maybe 30 or 40 leading Christians are getting these conversations with God and telling me that, man, that that's really God. Well, I was still unsure, you know, um, as we all are when we pray, we can be sure. But are we, you know? But we think. Well, we hope that we're right. We we think that we know that we just about believe. You know, it's it's difficult to believe, and, and the Bible's full of the Bible heroes were always like that, um, arguing with God. Uh, anyway, um, I'm sending these blogs out, and eventually, in one week, eight different people said to me that that's a book. You should put that in a book. Well, I wasn't keen, you know, because um, a book about conversations with God didn't sound to me like a sort of a a thing that would make you famous, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it it would make you infamous, um, (laughs) you know, um, because even Christians think that's a bit loopy, you know, backwards and what? You can't have backwards and forwards conversation with who do you think you are, you know. Um, Only Moses could do that, you know. Um, But... Jesus went around having conversations with whoever wanted to talk to him. And the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, and a lot of the people that Jesus had conversations with were right in the middle of doing something wrong, you know, or just being, you know, the woman caught in adultery or whatever, he had a great conversation with her, man, he revealed more truth to to her than he had to a lot of people, you know, or the woman at the well, you know, so Jesus didn't seem to be any respecter of whether a person was good, bad or indifferent. He would have a conversation anyway. So I'm having these conversations. People tell me that I should put them in a book. I have a conversation with God about that. And say, you don't really want me to put this in a book, do you? That'd be a terrible idea. And God says, you know, no, I do it. It'd be a good idea actually. So, I put them in a book, 56 Conversations with God. And and it in New Zealand it became a bestseller, you know. So and there's quite a I think we've sold two or three thousand into the States, which is obviously, you know, not a lot, maybe a bit more than that. But um uh, anyway, it it sold reasonably well and and it apparently and I still can't quite believe this, Marina, but people say it changes their lives. I, I I guess when I read it now, I can – because, you know, I'm not having that conversation with God anymore. It's years ago that I did. I can see the power in it now. But at the time, I thought I must be just going mad. You
1: know? How has your relationship with the Lord changed since you wrote this book, Freedom Diaries? Uh,
2: it's changed. Because, see, I didn't know I was writing a book. I just thought I was having conversations with God, and I was sending them to people just to get them to kind of, please, can you tell me this is God or not? You know. But anyway, Um so it's changed as a result of having conversations with God. So I'll just throw this back at you. Um, you know, there'll be there'll, you'll have a lot of listeners who will be thinking, really, this guy thinks he's having conversations with God? You're kidding me. That's not right. Um, mm-hmm. But whichever way you view it, if you have a conversation, how do you get to know somebody? You get to know somebody by having conversations with them. You know, if you think about my situation with my wife and you said, if, you know, if one of your questions was, well, you know, you're back after five years apart, you know, um, how are you, how do you, how are you getting on? Um, you know, do you talk a lot? And if I'd said, well, no, no, we don't talk much at all really, but I know that she loves me. You know, you, all the woman in the audience would be thinking, oh, you know, he doesn't know her. Because if you're not talking backwards and forwards, you don't have a relationship with a hum- with another human being. That's true, isn't it? You know, you might think you do, but you don't. You know, it's right. infatuation or something, you know. Um, so if you are having a backwards and forwards conversation with God on a regular basis, then you are going to get to know that person far more. Now we believe as Christians that God is all merciful and all forgiving. And I mean, we're not sure about his anger and all those kind of things, but generally, you know, Jesus sounds like a good guy to hang with if he could, you know, wouldn't it have been great to hang with Jesus until they started killing them, you know, that kind of thing. But um, until then it was good. So this is the same Jesus. Um, so how has it affected my relationship? Well, I have realised that he's actually way more forgiving than I than I thought he was. You know, I, I um, that he's more interested in me than I would ever ever have thought possible, and not not just um, in that his interest in me is not primarily to get me to be a nicer person. Have you got kids, Marina? I do. Okay, so, you know, like I've got five adult kids um, and and I haven't been far from the perfect parent, you know, like like uh, there's all sorts of dumb mistakes I've made. But I have to say that as I began to get to know God in conversation, I thought, you know what? My picture of you as a father, God, you were, you were a worse father when I think about it really. My picture made you into a worse father than I've been. And I know that can't be true. You know, but mm-hmm. we just know that God isn't a worse father. Like Jesus even says that, you know, how how is it that you, being evil, would good, give good gifts to your children? You know, you wouldn't give them a stone, you know, if they asked for bread. So what? Do you think God in heaven's going to be like that? You know? Um, and He gives so, us the best. Yeah. So I have realized that he's not primarily focused on making me a better person. He just loves me. You know, um, you know, that verse that we all like to recite John three 16 for God. So loved the world. Well, we kind of, because of our, um, our Christian and our Western heritage, Christian heritage, really, actually. When you study Christianity and, and and you'd realize that what we think in the West is not quite what they thought in the early church, et cetera. Um, but we have this concept, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Our sort of Western version of that, the, the love word we interpret as, well, he sort of so pitied us in our mess that, you know, oh, well, I better send Jesus and then I can punish him and then I can forgive them, you know. Will you go, son? Yes, father. Okay, all right. You know, that's kind of how we paraphrase it in our head. Well, the word for love in that is agape, and one of the best Mm -hmm. translations of that is so highly esteemed. Mm -hmm. So for God so highly esteemed the world that he sent his only son, you know. Um, so that sort of just changes the whole perception. Not that God was so angry with us that he had to take it out on Jesus and then he could forgive us, you know. That, so you get to know stuff, really. I'm sorry, that's a very long answer. But in a conversation with anyone, including God, you, your relationship changes because you realize how amazing they are. You fall in love with them. That's how you fall in love with your partner. Not You become infatuated when you see how how you think they're lovely to look at but you fall in love with them somewhere in a conversation.
1: So how do you think God feels about us talking to him on a constant basis?
2: Uh, I think that that is his whole focus because we're made in his image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, in a relationship with another person, when when they're not talking to you, you, you start wondering what you've done wrong you know, immediately. And if you uh, have enough self-confidence to realize that it's not you, that it's they are not feeling so good, things aren't right. We don't feel right when we're not talking to the people that that we're loving, you know, and God loves all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. So if we're made in his image, that suggests that at least part of God wants to be in conversation with us. And then when you see the biblical heroes like David and Moses, you know, they were in constant conversation with God. The Psalms are just backwards and forwards conversations with God, you know. Um, and even, so,
1: you know, the scripture that we need to pray without seizing. I mean, that's constantly, right? Yeah, we need to and constantly sort of, be in prayer, talking yeah. to the Lord.
2: And I guess if, 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 if somebody said to me, "Look, you need to be—you always need to be talking to your wife," I wouldn't mm-hmm. think they meant talking 24 hours a day. I'd think they meant you need to keep up a constant discourse right. so everybody knows what's—you know—that you're in communication. You know, <laughs> um, so whatever. And, and like my wife has conversations with God too. She doesn't do it as often as I do, and she doesn't talk as much in those conversations as I do because it's personality-driven, you know. Um,
1: Mark, I know everyone deserves intim- intimacy with God, but do you think living in large cities of the world are more challenging to hear God's voice due to the city distractions? I mean, I know in New Zealand, it must be way easier.
2: Um, yeah, actually, well, here's my answer to this. I, I, um, early on in the conversation with god and this happens a lot now i'd be driving along on my car you know and i'd have i have the radio on you know um, listening to secular rock music i know that's terrible but half your listeners won't listen to anyone but I, I would be i'd be just driving along listening to secular some old van morrison song or something like that you know and um, i think oh i need to talk with god about such and such you know so i'd turn the radio off so i could have some peace and, and quiet and i was really amazed the first time I just knew in my heart that God had said, leave the radio on. Oh, what? This can't be you. You know, and I sort of argued with God about that. And in the end, I thought, no, I'm sure God's saying it. Why? Why would you want me to turn the radio on, leave the radio on? And this is what God said. If I can't be relevant to you in your everyday life, You know, like if you had your wife with you and you needed to talk to her, would you rush off into the toilet and say, right now, can we just talk here for a minute? You talk to your wife in the cafe when you're driving along, just as life is happening, because that's how it's got to be. The kids are running in and out of the house screaming Mm -hmm. about this and that. You're still (laughs) trying to talk to each other. That's life, right? Um, And I felt like God was saying, look, yes, it's nice when I prayed to Jesus and Jesus, I would go away somewhere and pray, you know, um, but also, when he was surrounded by thousands of people, he would look heaven and talk to God, and you know he was obviously in well John five thirty says, "I can do nothing unless I hear it from God. That's my paraphrase, but basically that's what it says, so that means everything Jesus did he was in conversation with God, you know. Um, at the wedding, you know, when he does his first miracle. You know, there's a really interesting thing. His mother says, look, talk to him. He'll sort out the wine problem. And Jesus says, my time has not come. Now, he must have heard that from God. If I can do nothing without hearing from God, he must have heard from God. Well, the next thing, you know, mom just ignores that completely. And the servants turn it, and so now Jesus is going to change the water to wine. Well, he must have had another conversation and said, "God must have said, yeah, okay, you can do what your mum says.'" Well, Jesus, you know, you imagine being Jesus, he we go, "Hang on, you, you just said no." <laughs> well, now, now it's yes. You know, I'm, I'm, I've changed my mind. You know, now the, your mum's an assistant, so we'll do it her way. Does that make sense? It is making sense. Yeah. So I think in the city, in the you know, like you, it's all very well to want to escape the city to talk to God, but how many people have that choice? You know, yes, in New Zealand it is easy. We we can we can get out in the country, etc. But we, it's all relative. You know, I just know that God wants me to be in conversation and relationship with Him in my in as my day happens. You know, rather than have to run away somewhere. You know.
1: Mark, we have about less than one minute. I want to ask you this question so that you can address it to the listeners. What is the major result from developing a daily conversation with God?
2: Um, Self-acceptance. Because God accepts me. You know, it's like being with a dad who loves you. In the end, you start loving yourself.
1: Would you say also falling in love with him?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of, for, for an old white guy, is like, really? It's a bit kind of embarrassing. But yes, I, I no longer have to say, you know, God, I love you, and sort of like work it up. You know, I think, man, I really do love God. It's kind of weird, but I do, you know.
1: We have run out of time, but we will return next Sunday with another guest the Lord has brought to, Faith City Outreach. Psalm 117 Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord.
0: You have been listening to Faith City Outreach with Marina Maria as she interviews Christian pastors and leaders to discuss scriptures and topics affecting the Christian community and to pray for the nations. If you need to contact Marina Maria, please email her at fcoprogram at gmail.com. That email again is fcoprogram at gmail.com. Until next time, Marina wants to remind you from Matthew six thirty three. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The music used in this broadcast is used courtesy of zapswat.com.